Now, I want to share with you this, story, <clears throat> this morning a bit of my story, specifically how God called me to be a uh, pastor and teacher. Mine wasn't a story of a precocious young thinker who made his way in the world or uh, the kid who raised his hand every day in class because he knew all the answers or in Sunday school said, pick me, pick me. I was definitely not that kid. The most I could claim in a very competitive family that I grew up in was my parents told me I had the highest IQ of all my brothers and sisters, but we're all pretty sure that was just to motivate me because I was a tremendous slacker in my studies. And needed something to get me going. But after trusting Jesus when I was 16 years old, uh, something remarkable happened, guys. I, I bought a Bible. Uh, I not only began reading it, but started outlining it, beginning with the book of Mark. Took a notebook, outlined it. Then I searched on something new called AOL. That's how, that's how old I am. Um, the internet prodigy, something like that. Uh, and I found a bunch of Bible studies for free. And I collected a note, three-hole punched it collection of notebooks, I became overnight a Bible nerd. For a kid who had previously put all his thought into sports, girls, friends, girls, this was very odd that this was becoming my new modus operandi. This is what I started to love. The youth pastor at my parents' church gave me opportunities to share what I was learning in the youth group, and some Young Life staff members gave me opportunities to do the same with middle schoolers. I was in high school at the time, and let me share with these middle schoolers what God was teaching me through his word. Having known me previously, my youth pastor and my parents' senior pastor suggested that teenage boys such as I was, outlining the Bible, compiling Bible studies, sharing what I learned from the book of Romans with my peers, was so unusual that it was likely that the Holy Spirit had actually gifted me with gifts, the gifts of teaching and the gifts of knowledge, and maybe he's calling me to use those for the rest of my life. Sometimes we believe God will only strengthen people's pre-existing talents, what they had before, but I'm living proof otherwise that Holy Spirit can give gifts where there were none otherwise previously. Gifts that just supernaturally come into your life because God loves you through Christ and puts in you the Holy Spirit. So with this gifting and confirmation of calling. I went to the university where I met so many amazing friends, some of whom let me continue to use these gifts to serve. And during my sophomore year, I hit a big dry spot in all of it. As I was sharing, I started to notice people weren't really responding. There wasn't a resonation with what I was sharing and the people with whom I was sharing from God's word. People just didn't seem to be getting it. And I was having trouble sharing it such that I was starting to dread preparing anything I taught, and get anxious when I got to the moment of teaching it. So I just stopped altogether. I was attending an uh, Assembly of God's Church at the time uh, in the city. They were hosting a special night of worship. I attended with a few friends, and towards the end of the service, I sort of just stayed seated while all my friends got up. And from behind, I felt a woman tap on my shoulder and turned around and I remember she said, all she shared very simply was this, that I felt God encouraging me to come up to you and communicate that he has not left you nor taken from you his gifts and calling. He's testing you to see if you'll keep going even when you don't see the fruit. Now, I don't know what I've shared. This may or may not be from God. Does it resonate with you? And as I turned around with tears, she could see that it did. It most certainly resonated with me. 
I just experienced, guys, for the first time what the New Testament calls a prophecy. A prophecy is telling the telling of something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Sometimes it takes the form of an impression, just a hunch that someone's struggling with something. And you need to share with them what God's put on your heart. Sometimes it takes the form of an image, like a painting or a picture God puts in your head to share with someone or someones. Sometimes it's a a vision, like a short film or trailer, like a movie trailer God just plays briefly in your mind, sometimes on loop. You know you're supposed to share it with someone, and so you do. Other times it's a single word that God just puts in your mind, or, or it's oftentimes God takes out his Holy Spirit highlighter as you're reading scripture and just highlights something you're reading, knowing that it's for someone else, maybe to share with them or give to them. These are some of the ways that God gives what's called a prophecy. God used to speak solely through the prophets. Their writings make up most of what we read in the Old Testament, uh, such that to, to actually disobey a prophet was to disobey God. If you disobeyed a prophet, you disobeyed God. If you obeyed a prophet, you were obeying the words of God himself. And in the New Testament, this role is given to the apostles who, following the command of Jesus in John 17, are the mouthpieces of God to speak the final and authoritative word of God. Okay, so in the Old Testament, it was the prophets who did this. Now, God is using the apostles to write down this final and authoritative word of God. And that's why we don't see apostles any longer. We had them, they're gone. But he also gives to churches lowercase what I call lowercase prophecies and prophets. All right, big P prophet, Old Testament prophets, when they said, when they spoke, they were speaking the very final and authoritative word of God, but God gives churches what I call lowercase prophecies and prophets who speak not with absolutely divine authority, but simply relay what they sense God putting on their mind or into their hearts, and they're just sharing that. It will always mesh, if it's truly from God, it will always mesh with God's word, and provides some a timely encounter with our Creator. So they're wonderful to receive. They're always a gift as they're from God. Take my case, for example, the case I just shared with you. The woman who tapped me on the shoulder. What this woman communicated were four truths from Scripture, right? God is with you. God has gifted every believer. He's testing us, and you're meant to produce fruit. These are all truths that I could have just looked up right here in my Bible. Or I could have heard from a preacher in a four-point sermon. But it was so timely to hear this message from God through a fellow human being face-to-face because they sensed it was for me. So encouraging, so timely, and so comforting. And this is what a lowercase prophecy is, lowercase p prophecy is. Open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And you will need to find a Bible this morning. As already documented, we will not have anything up on the screen. Acts chapter 21, and start by reading verses 1 through 16. That's going to be on page 796. If you want to use a Bible at the end of these aisles or in the chair pockets, please grab one. One of the wonderful features of reading the Acts of the Apostles is that we get to see these truths of the Bible fleshed out right in front of our eyes in real time, not by actors, not by pretenders, but by real people. And this is the case. I want to unpack from our passage seven realities about prophecy for the church today that are fleshed out here. Seven realities about prophecy for the church today fleshed out here. 
and the church of yesterday. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, which is an island. Leaving it on, uh, on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed on, at Tyre. From there, the ship was to unload its cargo. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, Ptolemais, sorry, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh in Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Prophetic number one. The prophetic reality, the first one for our church today, is that the Spirit speaks so that others can benefit. It's hard enough, isn't it, to drag yourself here on a Sunday. And I can see it in some of your faces. You need more caffeine. You need more coffee. I get it. It's hard enough just to get here, much less God beam down to you a personal message and you be open to that. When the New Testament norm is that each Sunday you come, each community group, night you go to, you might need to get into someone's business or they get into yours because God communicates to you a special message for that person. I get it. Some of us don't want that. Imagine the Christians at Tyre. They would have been content to see the Apostle Paul, an apostle they had actually probably not met before, very likely not by the wording here of Paul searching out for disciples. And here he was. It would have been great to just go hear him, sit in the back, receive a word of encouragement, and move on. But something different happened that day, and the Holy Spirit gave them a message for Paul. Supernatural words, impressions, hunches, encouragements are ours for others. God has to give them. We are totally reliant on God to bring that message. But when we get them, they are ours for others. I want to read a few scriptures to confirm that. You'll have to listen along with me this morning. 1 Corinthians 14.3, if you want to write that down. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, for their consolation. 1 Corinthians 14.5 
I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Why? So the church may be built up. Not a word for self. It's not to kind of harbor and take in. It's always for the church to be built up. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. Another word there for a prophecy. A tongue or interpretation. Let all things, though, be done for building up. You see the theme there, right? For others, for the church, for building up. That's what, when God speaks to us, that word is usually for others, not for us to harbor for ourselves. And God is so wise, I think, in his design of this ours for others concept. Think of it. We're prone to want to hear from God, right? Everyone here has probably at some point in their life wanted to hear from God. But for what? For what? For ourselves, right? For our own comfort, for a cool experience, for guidance on major and minor decisions, to get goosebumps and that feeling we get that God is near to us. This, I admit, is a major guy's fault of mine. I, I often long to come to church and have that telephone booth relationship with God, right? Right, kind of, everyone's there, everyone's, someone's next to me, but I have an imaginary booth I kind of step into, right? God, let's talk, <laughs> right? Talk to me here. I don't want anyone else to hear what you're saying. And I don't want to speak to anyone else today. Is that okay? Okay, good. Right? That's how I often come to church. And maybe that's the truth for you as well. But that's not the way the body of Christ is designed to be. God's design is that we get to hear God's voice and immediately calls us to sort of orient ourselves outward and ask the question, for who? For whom? For whom? If you happen, by the way, to get an image this morning or a word of a birthday cake, some candles, and my wife, know that that's for me. That image is for me because I still don't know what to do for her birthday in 10 days, all right? So you're probably getting an image from God of what I'm supposed to do on her birthday, and I just haven't heard it, all right? And I'd love to be able to say to her during the birthday, look, you can't blame me. This was from God, all right? So that, that would be wonderful. So just pass that along. Thank you. <laughs> Side note. But it is. It's ours for others, so pass it along. The second reality about prophecy for the church today is this. Hearing from the Spirit requires no special qualifications. Not a PhD, not an MD, not an MDiv, as we see with Philip's daughters. It's interesting, by the way, that Luke inserts this detail about Philip's daughters without giving any specifics of their contribution. One of the early church fathers, Papias, tells us that they, these, these daughters of Philip were val- a valuable source of information for early Christianity. It's very likely, in fact, that they're mentioned here that Luke is kind of giving them a nod because they are key information sources for the book that he's writing right here. Remember Philip, the evangelist, the one who led that Ethiopian to Christ in the desert? And these quiet daughters who had this gift watched ministry go on and helped Luke probably write his book. And Luke's saying, thank you guys, bringing a verse of the Bible to you. Pretty awesome. Furthermore, Luke has a habit in in his gospel and in Acts of naming unlikely persons to be used of God. The term Luke actually uses here indicates they weren't ladies, but they're very likely girls under the age of 16. That term you, you read for virgins. And we're told they regularly prophesied. So here you have girls, number one, who often weren't heard in this very patriarchal society, heavily patriarchal society. Not only that, but girls under the age of 16 who regularly spoke about impressions, words, hunches, highlights from the word of God to give to other people in the body of Christ. 
They didn't have to have qualifications. Consider how different that is. Consider eldership, for which the Apostle Paul gives qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Being hospitable, not being a new convert, et cetera, et cetera. Not being prone to addiction and to wine and to greed and these sorts of things. There's all these qualifications, right? For those who elders who labor in preaching and teaching, it is a labor, which means there's preparation involved, and often schooling is appropriate for that. For deacons, we're told in 1 Timothy 3 that there's a season of testing for deacons to go through, but not so for someone who has the gift or spontaneously prophesies. No special qualifications are required other than knowing Jesus and having the Holy Spirit. Accordingly, if it's available to all, all should seek this gift. By the way, when I say gift, what do I mean by that? I mean a special intensification, a special magnification, if you want to think of it that way, of what God can and already will do through Christians, which is speak. Sometimes he just means to magnify that in your life, to intensify it within you. He wishes to sometimes give a person an ongoing gift of passing on a spontaneous message from him. Think of it like the difference between a cup of water and a water fountain. It's still still water. The origin is the same. But the cup of water is handed to you through someone else one at a time. Whereas God may give you some water fountain to access more regularly. And that's what he does when he gives you a gift. It's like this water fountain inside of you. You can actually access it more regularly to pass on encouragement and refreshing and what someone needs to other people. That's the difference between something that's spontaneous and something that's actually a gift. And Paul tells the church of Corinth this, 1 Corinthians 14.1, desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. There's something about this gift in particular that provides encouragement, helps people see that God is near and that he is real, especially prophesy. Here's the third reality about prophecy for the church today. The Spirit speaks, and you can misinterpret You can be wrong about what he says. We see this to the disciples of Tyre. Look at this in verse 4. Again, I have to keep keep referring back to your Bible here. Verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This might not sound weird to you unless you had also read chapter 20. I'll read it for you. The Spirit at work here also told Paul, chapter 20, verse 22, Paul is going to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit. So wait a minute, Paul is told by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, chapter 20, go to Jerusalem. But what's up in verse 21? Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. How are both things true? Because we know that God does not contradict himself. The disciples of Tyre were experiencing the Holy Spirit. They simply got it wrong. They simply got it wrong. This will happen sometimes when God means to communicate. Why does it happen? Let me give you a few reasons why this sometimes happens. Firstly, clouded judgment, right? Often we hear what we want to hear. Jeremiah 17, 9, that Old Testament prophet says that the heart is deceitful beyond all things. The heart is so deceitful. We can't often just trust whatever comes into our mind is from God. Often it's not. We also get these things wrong. We also report something that's really not from God because of impatience. Remember the example of King Saul who was told to wait for the prophet and priest Samuel prior to making a sacrifice and going to war. But Saul got antsy. He heard the troops from far away. He knew he had to do something. So what does he do? He gets an animal. He sacrifices it. And just then Samuel comes up and says, what have you done? What have you done? 
impatience. Let me give you an example from my own life. I, I remember mishearing from God about where I was supposed to go to seminary. Uh, I was choosing between three, you know, solid schools, and I was feeling really pressed about where we should go, and I was getting married to Katie, and we had to make some decisions, and I, I asked my flatmate to pray with me. And while we, was, we were praying, he said something in his prayer about the southwest part of the United States. And one of the seminaries I was looking at, called Fuller, was in Los Angeles, which is the southwest part of the United States. And I thought to myself, this is it. And I wrote about it, and I put it in a journal, and I told Katie, and I was so excited, and I told him, I think God just prophetically spoke through you. And I, did, I neglected the detail that he was from Los Angeles himself. And so when he was praying and happened to mention that, he was just really talking about home. <laughs> it wasn't from God. I misheard it and then misapplied it in my life. Why? Because I was impatient. I just really, really, really felt I needed to hear from God. I needed the guidance. Come on, God. I'll take anything. And other times we, we often mishear it's because we are human. And that's just basically it. Isaiah 55, 9 says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So when God speaks, sometimes we just won't get it. Sometimes it'll sound like a messed up scrabble board to us. That's just the way it's going to be. So the third reality about the church is that the Spirit speaks and you can misinterpret. The fourth reality about prophecy for the church is this. The Spirit speaks and you can interpret it mostly right. You can get it mostly right. And that's what we see with Agabus. This is a really cool part here. Let's read verse 10. While we were staying... When we were staying for many days there in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, the trip from Judea, from Jerusalem, which is more inward in Judea, but, it's, but that from, from Caesarea to, to Jerusalem was about 60 miles. So he was, Agabus, an active member of a truly sister church. So, so he wasn't like one of these prophets who tours around the country. Right, because he's a prophet, like a rock star, saying, like, I'm a prophet, I'm going to share, I'm a prophet, I'm going to share. No, he's part of a sister church, closely aligned, part of a local body who's just come down to visit. Not part of a prophetic rock tour. And this is important because God gives prophecies and prophets for the local church. Verse 11, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. Which, by the way, it's got to be a really long belt, right? I mean, he's binding this up. I mean, this is, what does Paul have for a belt? Unbelievable. Anyway, sorry. He bound his own feet and hands, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him in the hands of the Gentiles. And what we find out as we continue to read this chapter is that Agabus was mostly right. Read with me if you would. Verses 27, we're going to read through verse 36. This is important. As we see this prophecy come to fulfillment, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him. This is in Jerusalem. Here it comes, ready? They're crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place, which, by the way, was a lie. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which Paul had not. Then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, the cohort. That's the Roman cohort. The cohort would be kind of a commander of a thousand people. Word came to this cohort. 
that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers, Roman soldiers, Roman centurions. He ran down to them. When they saw the, uh, the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. He couldn't learn all the facts, so he ordered them to be basically put in jail. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed crying out, away with him. So comparing this to Agabus' prophecy, let's read that one more time. The Holy Spirit says, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt, but deliver him in the hands of the Gentiles. What's different about how this actually comes to fulfillment? Anybody notice? What detail is different about Agabus' prophecy and what actually happens? The Jews don't bind him, do they? It's the Romans. It's the Roman centurions. It's the police who actually bind Paul, not the Jews. We see that Agabus is mostly right. We don't know for certain, but what likely happened is that Agabus received an image or vision of Paul bound, right? And an angry mob of Jews. So Agabus took this as the Jews would actually bind and arrest him. I always had this, this picture, this vision. All right, he's, he, he kind of sees it. Maybe it's a little fuzzy, but it's from God. And I'm, by the way, I'm so glad this is in the Bible because it's very typical of how wonderfully God speaks for the church today through a prophetic word. Dr. Wayne Grudem, who I highly respect in the theology and practice of prophecy, has a helpful image, which I can't show you, but <laughs> it's how God speaks through prophecy. And it's basically a God speaking with an arrow here, going through a person's head, and out comes a perfect person's imperfect interpretation. God speaks, but it has to go through this, which is an imperfect mind. It's a mind tainted by sin. It's a mind tainted by imperfection. It's a human mind that can't grasp the ways and thoughts of God. We can kind of get the main stuff, but it might not always be perfect and probably won't be because it's not the very word of God. Do you remember uh, being a teenager? maybe driving with your parents. You've had this experience, and uh, you controlled the radio uh, during that time, most likely, uh, because it's the only way you talk to your parents, as they let you, you know, control the radio. And they tried to learn your music. Did that ever happen to anyone here? This happened in my household. They, They tried to relate to me. I was a tough teenager. My dad tried everything. So he actually went out of his way to learn some of the music. You know, what are the kids listening to today, right? What's hip? What's out there? He didn't really say that. But it was that kind of mentality when I went driving with him. He would try to sing along. He never could quite interpret anything in the song but the chorus. Right? So I vividly recall the song Losing My Religion by R.E.M. coming on the radio. That's how old I am. On modern radio, the song Losing My Religion came on. Some of you are like, I don't even know that song. Oh, well. All right, so the song came on. And my dad, could. he was like, oh, Losing my religion. You know, it's kind of embarrassing. Trying to keep eye on you. That was the rest of the song. You just couldn't sing it. <laughs> this is how I think God speaks to us prophetically. Here's what I mean. Not with the details of all the stanzas of the song, but with the main chorus. He clearly spoke all the detailed stanzas and verses to the apostles who wrote down Holy Scripture. But he also, in addition, will speak prophetically some main impression, vision. While the details might be muddled, the chorus is there to encourage someone in their walk with God. That makes sense? 
By the way, that seems to be how he spoke to and through Agabus previously. Agabus actually shows up in Acts chapter 11. He predicts a famine that's going to happen throughout Judea, and he's right. But just like here, all right, just like what I'm saying now in chapter 11, Agabus doesn't get the details of when this famine's going to happen, the duration of it, or what to do. He gives the main chorus, the main impression. And you know what? The leaders of the church get on it. They start getting food together for Judea. They start going to other places of the world and preaching that we need money to support these people. Spirit speaks, and you can interpret it mostly right. All right, that's the fourth reality. The fifth reality about prophecy for the church is the Spirit speaks, someone rightly interprets, and you can misapply. We see that with we. We, in our passage, we see in verse 12, refers not only to Christians in Caesarea, but also Paul's, Paul's traveling companions and fellow leaders, Silas, Timothy, and even our own Dr. Luke, who writes this book. They even try to apply this prophecy for Paul, right? Paul, don't go. You heard this message. You're going to be bound. Don't go. This is a great reminder for anyone delivering the message. Leave it to the recipient to apply it to their life. Let me say that again. If God puts something on your heart to give you to, something else, give you to someone else, share the main part of it and then leave it to them to apply it to their life. Don't try to do it for them. That's between them and God. When you start to do that, you start to play the role of God and you meddle too much. God can do that. Unless it's biblically obvious. Obviously, if God says something to you about breaking off an adulterous affair, forgiving someone who wronged you, these are things we're supposed to do. It's break off an adulterous affair, right? Forgiving someone who wronged us. If God gives you a picture or impression of someone who's straining at the workplace or struggling at their workplace, that does not mean you should be telling them, you should probably look for another job. Just share with them what God's put on your heart and your mind. A sixth reality about church today, all prophecies ought to be weighed. What's interesting for Paul is that Paul doesn't merely dismiss the prophecy. First, he lets it get down deep into his heart and to his soul. In fact, the verb for, so you see in verse 13, for breaking. You're breaking my heart. Breaking is used for beating clothes to clean them. That's what Paul is saying. Is you're, you're pounding on my emotions. This is affecting me deeply. And any word from God or possible word from God should. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. Everyone should be weighing what is said, if it might be from God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. That speaks to a lot of us here who would be like, no, no. If someone comes up to me in church and says, I think God has something to say to you, maybe. Don't despise what they have to say. Don't dismiss it. Don't quench the spirit. On the other hand, that's why I like these verses so much, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So listen, weigh it, dismiss what you think is not from God. That's okay. I know a pastor who was once approached by someone in the church who told them, you know what? I think God is saying to me, pastor, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. Well, that's something to say to someone, right? How do you, how do you deal with something like that? If someone's to come to you and say, I think in your life you're quenching the Holy Spirit. You're you're putting out the fire that God's doing in your life. Let me give you four scales to help weigh a prophecy. One, does the prophecy align with Scripture? Does it align with Scripture? If it doesn't, you can dismiss it right away. Number two, does it resonate with my circumstances and character? Does it resonate with my circumstances? Something going on in my life or something I know about myself to be true, does it resonate with either of those? Number three, what's the feedback I'm getting from trusted friends and church leaders? 
Go to someone. Ask them, what do you think about this? You know me. You pray for me. You know my heart. What do you think? Make sure you do that. And finally, is the content upbuilding, encouraging, and consoling. Remember we read 1 Corinthians 14.3. Prophecies are given for people's upbuilding, encouragement, and consoling. My pastor friend, having heard this from this woman, had a check in his spirit immediately about that upbuilding part. But, but he looked at himself, sought feedback from some people who knew him, and he determined that the word might not be necessarily directly for him, but maybe be a kind of warning to watch his life and his intimacy with God, to make sure he stayed close with the Holy Spirit. A couple years later, that same person approached my pastor friend and actually asked for forgiveness about that. So it's important we weigh what someone says to us as well as being from maybe from God. Finally, our seventh and last reality about prophecy for the church today, because of Jesus, this is the most important thing this morning, because of Jesus, we are free to step up after we mess up. That applies to everyone. We're free to step up after we mess up. The disciples of Tyre, they mess up, don't they? They get it wrong. Yet look at verses 5 through 6. All of them, including the families, accompany Paul. They kneel with Paul. They pray for Paul and with him, maybe including some more prophecies. You'd think maybe we should stop prophesying because we got it wrong. No. They affectionately say goodbye to Paul. Had the Tyrian Christians held too tightly to what they were hearing from God rightly, they would have likely walked away like, man, he's not going to listen to me? Fine. Well, what do people do? They vent to a couple church leaders. They say all the right things, act like a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, they just kind of are mad at that person. Well, he didn't listen to me. He didn't listen to what God said through me. I'm not going to talk to him. I wouldn't be upset with them. We know what that person's like. They're not open to God. No, they didn't. After messing up, they step up with their brother in Christ. Just as the we do, uh, verses 14 through 16, they ceased trying to persuade Paul. They submitted to what God wanted, even though they never say that we were wrong. Isn't that interesting? We never know if they're right or they're wrong. They never say they're right or they're wrong. We might be right, we might be wrong. Either way, we got ready, and we went up to Jerusalem with Paul. People changed their plans to be with their brother. Luke, in fact, ends up going all the way to Jerusalem with him. We're told later in 2 Timothy 4.11 that Luke is the only one who goes with Paul to the end. We're free to step up after we mess up. Why is this? Because the good news about Jesus is that he has done everything right for us that we could not do ourselves to bring us into this permanent relationship with God. That means that nothing we do, nothing we say, can make us more or less acceptable for God, to God. He accepts us because of Jesus, no matter what. No matter if we mess up, step up, get it wrong, or land in our face. He loves us, and he wants us to take risks. Furthermore, we're told that those who, call, who trust Jesus, all things work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. So not only are we free to mess up, God will incorporate the, the ugly browns and grays of those mess-ups in our life into a beautiful artwork for all to see. That's what he does. He's a master at that. You remember Jesus' parable of the talents? Remember this parable, Matthew 25? The master going on a journey hands out talents for every servant. At the end of the story, everybody wins. Everybody wins except for one person, the person who never takes a risk with what the master has given him. That's the only loser of the story. Friends, I don't want you to be that loser. So this morning, I expect God to ask some of you to come up and speak something for someone here in this room. 
I expect God to put a word, impression, a vision on someone's mind who didn't expect to, didn't even want to hear him speak. I expect God will help you follow through to deliver that message with humility and grace, saying things like, this might be from God, but I'm willing to admit it might not be. I expect God will open the heart of someone who doesn't expect to hear from God, but God will speak something you know that is for you. It is for you to sit with, to weigh, and to apply to your life. Finally, I, if I'm wrong, then I too am grateful for my freedom in Christ to mess up. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning uh, for this opportunity to, to overview this gift of prophecy. Thank you for this story fleshed out, how it fleshes out the use of impressions and hunches and pictures and words that are highlighted from scriptures or this a word that comes to our mind and how we're to use it in the church. So God, I pray this morning. And as I pray, I'm just going to take a moment of silence. After I pray a line, maybe this is something you need to pray also. So first, Lord, I ask for that you would give many of us here, some of us here, the gift of prophecy. And I pray that you would help us step out in our community groups, especially um, community groups, worship nights, and even on occasional mornings like these where we're looking at this wonderful gift. God, I pray for those to whom you speak. Help us simply offer the chorus and leave it to the rest of us to weigh and apply. God, I pray that you would help us weigh and apply what we hear. Is this from you? Does it line up with scripture? Does it make sense with my circumstances and my character? People agree that, that I trust. Do, is this encouraging to me? Does it build me up? God, help us trust that because of Jesus, we are free to step up this morning and take a risk, even if we might mess up too in the process, because you love us and accept us no matter what. And you'll use whatever we say somehow to your glory and for our good. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.